Hey, my name's Jeremy, and I have the privilege of serving as the lead pastor here at Shelter Cove. And I just want to say thank you so much for tuning in with us today. I firmly believe you're going to be encouraged, you're going to be inspired, but most of all, that God's going to do something through this message that's going to move you closer to Jesus. Thanks again for tuning in. It was the third night of our junior high summer church camp. And if you know anything about the third night of junior high summer church camp, you know that this is the night where things get real. The first night is kind of a wash because everyone's just showing up. Second night, they start to dig in. But the third night, man, tears are flowing. People are making big spiritual decisions. Like this is the night where it gets real. And that was certainly the case for our junior high summer church camp. We walked into the chapel and the vibe was like a little bit more somber. Usually it was upbeat and exciting, but it was kind of a little more calm this, day, this night. They started with worship right out of the gates, some music, and played kind of a longer worship set. And pastor got up, gave this really passionate sermon about the gospel. They had a skit that went right along with it and kind of demonstrated what Jesus has done for us. And I remember as the service started to wind down, the pastor brought the worship band back up. They started playing this great 90s worship song called I could sing of your love forever. And I remember they just were reprising the chorus over and over and over again. And the pastor gets up and makes this appeal to everyone. Hey, if you've heard this sermon tonight and, and you are ready to make a decision to follow Jesus, trust him for the forgiveness of your sins, you can pray this prayer with me. And, and afterwards, I want to see all the hands that go up of people that prayed. And so we all prayed and hands are going up like crazy. My hand was one of them. I remember this being like one of the first moments where it felt like I encountered God. It felt like, man, this is a powerful moment. And people are crying. They're talking with their small group leaders. They're up front worshiping. It was like a really powerful experience. And I remember the, like the spiritual high that came after this moment. We all leave the chapel. We're all talking. I just remember thinking to myself, man, like this is it. Like I have become a Christian. This is it. This is what it feels like. This is what it's going to feel like for the rest of my life. I'm never going to struggle with sin ever again. I'm never going to struggle with doubt. This is what it's going to feel like. I just got to think back to this moment right here, right now, and I'll be always charged up, always ready to go. Get down, get done with camp, get off the mountain. All that passion, all that motivation gone in like two days. And I was back to being my shady little 12-year-old self. I remember thinking, what happened? Like, I guess I didn't pray it right. I guess I wasn't sincere enough. Man, I should have cried. Why didn't I cry? Everyone else was crying. I should have cried with them. I should have sang that song one more time. I should have sang the chorus one more time Then maybe God would have heard my prayer. Okay, next time they give me a chance to ask Jesus to be my savior, I'm raising my hand, I'm crying, I'm doing the whole shebang. It's gonna work this time. So next week at youth group, they give an opportunity and I'm like trying to scratch my eyes to make myself cry. I'm praying as hard as I can. This is going to be the one. And I leave group going, okay, I think this worked. I think it's going to happen. I think I'm saved now. Tomorrow, next day, on the basketball court, catching elbow, dropping F-bombs. I'm like, oh, I guess it didn't stick. guess it didn't work. And for the next three, four, five years, I must have asked the Lord to be my Savior 50, 60 times. Because I just kept going, okay, well, it didn't work that time. I got to try it again. 
It didn't work. I got to try it again. I remember hearing sermons where a pastor would say, you have to invite Jesus into your heart. I'm like, oh, that's where I went wrong. I've been asking the guy to forgive me. I didn't ask him into my heart. I got to make sure I get the equation right. That's why he's not meeting me where I'm at. Other pastors would be like, it's not a religion. It's a relationship. You got to have a relationship with Jesus. It sounds like I'm going on a first date with him, but okay, I'll have a relationship with you, Jesus. Whatever I need to do, I want to do what I got to do to be saved. I got into this cycle for years of constantly raising my hand, constantly praying to be saved, only to fall flat on my face, sometimes hours later. All the resolve and the motivation I felt to follow God just evaporating into the wind. So I got to about 16, 17 years old before I started to go, you know what? I think I'm done with Christianity. I'm over this. I am tired of the false expectations. I am tired of feeling like a failure. I'm tired of the guilt. I am tired of not being able to do this. I'm over this. Like one of two things is happening here. Either Jesus isn't real and I'm just praying to the ceiling or he doesn't work for me. Either way, Jesus, I think it's time we go our separate ways. I wish in that season of my life, somebody would have sat down with me and went, bro, I got to show you Romans 8. I just got to show you Romans 8 real quick. I mean it when I say, you've got to hear me on this. I mean it when I say that it is a real privilege for me to stand up here and share with you the truth that we're going to look at today. Because even if there's just one of you that remotely feels like how I felt, to share with you the comforting, beautiful truth that we're going to see in this closing text of Romans 8 is so special to me. The hope that it might relieve some of your fears, some of your insecurity is just a special gift to me. So if you have your Bibles, would you grab them? Open up with me to Romans chapter 8. If you don't have a Bible, uh, raise your hand. We'll have ushers come by in just a little bit and grab a Bible for you. You'll find Romans chapter 8 on page 944 if you're using one of our Bibles. While we're passing these out, let me introduce myself. My name's Chad. I'm one of the pastors here at Shelter Cove. If you are joining us as a guest, welcome. Uh, We love that you're here with us. want to give a shout out to all of you joining us online. Um, great to have you guys here with us. So we are going to close off our series today in the chapter of Romans 8. We wanted to take some dedicated time with this chapter because it is one of the greatest soul-nourishing passages you're going to find in all of the Bible. It's a wonderful, wonderful text. Would you stand with me as we honor the reading of God's Word? Romans chapter 8, we'll pick it up in verse 31. I'm reading out of the English Standard Version. Here's how my translation reads. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Jesus Christ is the one who died. More than that was raised. Who is at the right hand of God. Who indeed is interceding for us. 
Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we're being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No. No. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's good stuff. Let's pray. Father, I want to thank you for these men and women here. I want to thank you, God, for these souls. And I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would illuminate their minds, illuminate their hearts. God, I pray that you would help us to see the truth of the gospel in new, deep, maybe clearer ways, Lord, than we have ever seen it before. Anchor our hearts in trusting you and in you alone. And I pray these things in your wonderful name. Amen. You may be seated. We're going to throw a picture up here on the screen of my two kids. These are my kids, Isaac and McLean. Uh, I want to show you this picture for two reasons. Number one, I like to show off my kids. I think they're awesome. Number two, I want you to see the two little pieces of fabric that they're both holding in their hands. Those are their blankets. These two pieces of fabric are probably the most important pieces of fabric in our entire households because they contain supernatural calming powers for our two little kids. I'm not sure how it works. I just know that if our kids are freaking out, we got to grab the blankets because it has magical powers. Now, my son and my daughter both affectionately refer to their blankets as their bubbas. That's what they call it. My son, when he was about one year old, started calling his blanket Bubba. I have no idea where that came from. I'm like, I guess your blanket's a hillbilly. I don't know where Bubba came from, but Bubba it is. And as our daughter started growing up, she picked up on the verbiage and started calling her blanket Bubba as well. Now, I want you to see this because to me, this evokes like a really really cool image. This is such a source of security for my kids. Their, their blanket is such a source of comfort. I've been praying that the text we look at today would become for you a warm blanket on the dark, cold nights of the soul. I've been praying the truth we're going to look at today would nourish and comfort your soul in just deep, profound ways, in ways that nothing else can. In your notes, I, I try to explain the goal of what I want us to, to leave here with, the, what I hope to accomplish. I said it like this, that every Christian can find freedom. We can find freedom today in God's security by answering these questions. You see, the way this text is going to work, the ending section of Romans 8, Paul is going to ask a bunch of rhetorical questions. He's asking questions to try and lead us down the road to a certain conclusion. And so I want to answer these questions in the hopes that we can be led to the conclusion we can have deep, profound security in what God has done for us. Not in ourselves, not in our own accomplishments, but in what God has secured for us. And if you're type A, this message is going to be hard for you to hear. Because you're going to want to control, you're going to want to contribute, you're going to want to work, you're going to want to add to it. 
And it's gonna maybe push back on you in the loving, gracious way that the Bible does. So here's the first question right out of the gates. Is there anyone greater than God? That's what Paul starts off with. Is there anyone greater than God? Anyone stronger? Anyone more powerful? No. No, the answer is a resounding, clear, powerful no. Here's what he says. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Paul's asking the question, what do we do with everything that I've just laid out in Romans chapter eight? I have laid out some incredible theological truths. He lays out in verse one that if you are in Christ, that means if you have come to Jesus with just a small amount of faith, not even a mature amount of faith, a small amount of faith asking Jesus to be your savior, the text says there is no condemnation, none, zero, gone. All the wrath, all the guilt, all the shame has been wiped clean because of our small little amount of faith coming to Jesus for help. And then next verse, the very next verse says, the spirit of God is dwelling now in that man or woman, changing them, putting to death the power of sin and death. Paul goes on to say that we're going to rule and reign alongside King Jesus. We're going to be co-heirs with Jesus in heaven. He says that the father has from eternity past predestined, predetermined, elected, called, justified, and glorified us. From eternity past, it has always been the Father's plan to save and redeem. And he goes, if that's not good enough, the Holy Spirit of God is interceding on our behalf. Like when we come to pray to God and we don't know how to pray and we're short on words, the the Holy Spirit's like, I got you. I know what you're trying to say. I'll bring it to the big man. I know exactly what you're trying to say. Unbelievable truths. Paul's like, what do we say to this? What do we do with this? And he's anticipating an objection. Paul does this all through the book of Romans. He's expecting you to object and ask questions. And the question that he's, ex- he's expecting is someone like you sitting there going, okay, that's cool, but what if there's a power greater than God? What if there's something or someone out there that can trump and, and supersede what God has done? And so this is what Paul asks. God's for us. Who can be against us? Is there anyone that can override God? No. But you see, church, I don't know if you suffer from what I suffer from. I have something called Christian amnesia, and I forget. I forget very, very regularly just how powerful, just how mighty, just how sovereign our God really is. And as I start to shrink God down, you know what happens? All my stress, anxiety, and fear starts to grow. There's an inverse relationship to those two. So I have to constantly go back to the scriptures. I have to have my brothers in Christ remind me just how big God is. And there's a text I like to go to. It's Mark 4 into Mark 5. I love this passage of scripture. Because if there's two areas in life that are, they're just big, they're, they're humbling they are areas of life that we can't control as humans. You know what they are? Mother nature and the spiritual powers of darkness. That's way beyond our control. So what you see in Mark 4 is Jesus is out in a boat with his disciples and this huge storm sweeps across the Sea of Galilee. The wind is blowing hard. The rain is falling down fast. The boat is close to sinking. 
This is a little bit lost on us because we live in California. We don't have severe weather. Um, but like if you're from the Midwest or back East, weather can literally kill you. Like mother nature's out to murder you. <laughs> My brother lives in Tennessee. He has a tornado bunker in his garage. You ever heard really, really loud thunder? Makes you feel small, huh? The storm is sweeping across the Sea of Galilee. The disciples wake Jesus up in a panic. Jesus stands up. He rebukes the storm. The way a father rebukes his child. He rebukes the storm. The winds ceased. And the text says, there was a great still. It was creepy quiet. Now you would think the disciples would be like, snap, son, did you see that? That was crazy, Jesus. You got to bust that out the next party. Nobody's going to believe it. They look at Jesus and they're like, who is this? The text says they're filled with fear, great terror. Jesus gets out of the boat, steps onto the shore, starts walking up the shore. There is a man in this region who is possessed by four to 5,000 demons. The text says he is possessed by a legion of demons. In Roman army divisions, a legion is four to 5,000 soldiers. The authorities have tried to shackle this man down with iron shackles and chains, and he wrenches them apart. He cuts himself open with rocks. He runs around dead bodies shouting at the top of his lungs. This is a freaky guy. It's a scary man. Jesus walks onto the shore, takes a couple of steps, and this demon-possessed man from afar sees Jesus, runs to Jesus, falls at his feet, and pleads with him, please do not destroy me. Please do not kill me. Jesus didn't even say anything. He steps out of the boat, and 5,000 demons run and fall at his feet. Church, I have to be reminded that my Savior, at his mere words, Mother Nature bows her knee. I have to be reminded that thousands upon thousands of demons fall at his feet in terror. Because I forget, I forget just how strong Jesus is how mighty he is. You watch how demon-possessed men interact with Jesus, you'll see a common theme develop. They say one of two things almost always. We know who you are and have you come to destroy us? <laughs> the disciples asked, who is this? The demons knew very well who Jesus was and they trembled in fear. And you want to know what's awesome? That God is for us. The God that makes Mother Nature bow her knee and the forces of darkness bow their knees in fear. He's for us. He is leveraging his power to save us. Now, a lot of people will look at Romans chapter 8. They'll look at this text here. If God is for us, who can be against us? And they kind of use it in an unfair way. They'll use it like this. Okay, I've got a test today and I didn't study but if God is for me, who can be against me? Let's go. Let's take this test. <laughs> That's not exactly what it's speaking about here. 
speaking about salvation. Paul's saying, listen, if God is the active agent of salvation, who's going to stop him? Who? Is a storm strong enough? Are the powers of darkness strong enough? Seriously, who's got a higher authority than God Almighty? No one. That's not the only question he asks in your notes. Will God be stingy in giving us what we need? Is he going to withhold from us what we need to follow him? 32. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Here's the argument. If Jesus was willing to die on a cross for us, if he was willing to come down out of heaven, be slaughtered at the hands of the very own people he made, if he was willing to go that far to save us, will he not go just as far to keep us? Will he not go just as far to mature us and to develop us and to sanctify us? Church, you've got to hear me on this. Your maturation in Christ, your development and growth in Christ is not dependent on you. Praise God for that. Do you want to know why? Because you and I would royally screw it up. If I went so far to die to save you, I will go just as far to give you everything that you need to follow me. And this isn't like an isolated text in the New Testament. All over the Bible we see this. Philippians 1.6, Paul says, I'm confident in this. He who began the good work in you will what? See it through to completion. I start it, I complete it. That text did not say, hey, Chad, I'm going to start this, but you better get your act together and finish it. Hebrews 12.2, Jesus is the author and the perfecter of our faith. Some of your translations will say the founder and the finisher of our faith. He starts it. He'll be faithful to complete it. The high priestly prayer, John 17 Jesus says to the Father, all of the sheep that you have given to me, I have not lost one. I haven't lost one of them. Jesus says to his disciples, you guys are evil, but you know how to give good gifts. Kind of a backhanded compliment, right? You guys are evil, but you know how to give good gifts. How much more does a perfect heavenly Father know how to give the gift of the Holy Spirit to those who ask of him? Do you think God is going to just save us and then allow us to just spin our wheels and struggle and fail for the rest of our lives? Do you think that's what he's going to do? Or do you think that he will go just as far to grow us, develop us, mature us, lead us into life that is really life? Of course he's going to. Now, this Bible verse is not saying here that God will give us everything we want. There's a lot of pastors out there deceiving thousands, making millions on that lie. He will give us exactly what we need. Will we sometimes feel like he's not doing the right thing? Will we sometimes have questions and doubts? Oh, yeah. Yeah. But this text here, it just said he will graciously give us every spiritual blessing we need. He's going to equip us to follow him. He's not just going to leave us orphaned. He's not going to be like, all right, I saved you. Go figure it out. 
See you in about 80 years when you die. No, I'm going to be right here with you. I'm going to complete this good work that I started. Third question. Can anyone successfully condemn God's elect? Yes. No, I'm just kidding. It's no. The answer is no. I just want to see if you're paying attention. No, of course not. Look at what 33 says. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. So here's what's happening here. Paul's hitting this on two levels. Um, the word justification means not guilty. It's a legal term. Innocent. The judge bangs the gavel, sovereignly declares that whoever is before him is innocent. That's justification. So here's how the justification of Jesus works. It's so complete. It's so beautiful. Jesus is not only the judge who bangs the gavel, highest court, highest authority, highest power in the known universe, and sovereignly declares, Chad Garrett Blackman, because your faith is in me, your sin is wiped clean. None of it. Gone. It's all wiped clean. He's not only the judge that makes that sentence, he's also the prisoner that bore my sin and shame. He's also the prisoner that died under the penalty that should have befallen me. He's judge and he's prisoner. And so when Satan comes and lobbies accusations against us, Jesus is able to so fully defend us. He's able to so fully step in and go, wait, wait, wait. I bled out for that man. I shed my own blood for him. I eternally covered his sin. All of his sin has been wiped clean by my sacrifice on the cross. And I am also who sits in the seat of authority and sovereignly declares that because of my work, I have wiped his sin clean. You have no accusation here. It gets even sweeter. Watch, it gets even better. 34, who is to condemn? Who's going to condemn us? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised. It's really important that Jesus came back from the dead because it proves the penalty and the weight of sin could not hold him down. So if he raised from the dead, he's able now to promise future eternal life to those who trust in him. He's the forerunner. He's the one that showed, hey, this is what's going to happen for those that believe in me. I have conquered sin and death. And if your faith is in me, you will conquer it as well. He was raised, watch this, is at the right hand of God, the position of prominence, the position of authority, the position of power, who indeed is interceding for us. <laughs> Paul has explained the Holy Spirit is interceding for us. This text right here just said Jesus is interceding for us. He's coming to our defense Paul explained earlier on that the Father predestined from eternity past to call, justify, glorify. The entire Godhead is leveraging their power to save and redeem you and I. <laughs> Who's going to stop this? Who's going to bring a condemnation? Who's going to bring an accusation that will change God's mind? No one. And look at me, you got to hear me. I'm going to tell you this because I love you. Your own thoughts about your sin 
cannot condemn you. You can play a guilt trip on yourself for sure. You can spiral out in your own brain into some into a real heavy guilt trip. But it does not condemn you before God the Father if you're in Christ. Look, if you're anything like me, if you're anything like me, nobody will lie to you, hurt you, betray you, beat you up more than you. If you're anything like me, no one's going to condemn you more than yourself. You need to know that the Bible here is explaining the entire Godhead is actively working to save you and to keep you. Despite all your failures, despite all your mistakes, despite having all that motivation resolve at one point and then falling flat on your face, God is actively working to save you. Question number four. Can anyone or anything separate us from the love of Christ? No. 35, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? And then what Paul's going to do here, he's going to anticipate possible objections. It's like, it's like he's expecting us to go, but wait, but wait, can this separate us? But Paul, wait, can that separate us? And he's just going to consistently, systematically go, no, 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 no. Can anyone or anything separate us from the love of Christ? No. But wait, can tough times separate us? What if things get really, really hard? What if life gets really, really difficult and we start to doubt God a little bit? Can tough times separate us? No. Here's what he says. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, sword? It's important to know those are all things Paul suffered. Paul's not writing about this theoretically. Paul got the snot beaten out of him numerous times, falsely imprisoned numerous times, shipwrecked three times, run out of town over and over and over. This man suffered. Do you think he had some nights laying in bed going, man, Lord, I don't know if this is the right move. Man, God, where are you? Man, God, I'm trying to be faithful. Why do I keep getting beat up everywhere I go. Then he quotes Psalm 44 here. Paul's like, listen, even the Bible says we're going to get picked on. Even the Bible says if we follow Jesus, it's going to go rough for us. Psalm 44 says this, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Are the tough times going to separate us? 37, no. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors. We are uper nikomen. We are hyper Nike men. That's how it reads in the Greek. We are overcomers, more than overcomers. We are more than conquerors through him who loved us. I'm going to tell you a really difficult truth about Christianity. God does his best work. He does his best developing, his best maturing in the difficult, dark seasons of life. I wish it wasn't like that. I wish I could stand up here and say, you will grow in Christ exponentially by chilling on the beach with a tasty beverage. I wish I could sell that to you. I've tried it. It doesn't really work that well. It's a fun time. Nothing will grow you more 
than facing really challenging, difficult seasons of life, coming to the end of your rope, feeling like you're about to throw in the towel. After you've cried all the tears, after your heart has broke more times than you thought it could break. In that moment, when you find Jesus and rest, lean into his power and his peace, you grow in ways that the good times just can't produce. I wish it wasn't like that. God's power shines in our weakness. So when the tough times come, his power is just made more manifest. Will tough times separate us now? But wait, will death or life separate us? Can death or life separate us from God? No, absolutely not. 38, for I'm sure that neither death nor life. God says in the Psalms that he delights in the death of his saints. This temporary life is not going to separate us from the infinite eternal life that is waiting for us. Death or life will not separate us. But wait, can angels or demons separate us? No. For I'm sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers. In the Greek, that phrase rulers refers to spiritual powers of darkness. Well, we already covered that. Jesus takes mere steps onto the shore and thousands of demons fall at his feet, pleading with him, don't torment us, don't kill us. There is no angel, there is no demon that will even come close to usurping, undermining the salvation of Jesus Christ Almighty. None. But wait, can our current problems, maybe our future problems, can that separate us from the love of God? For I'm sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come. No, of course not. There's no issue that you're facing right now that has surprised God. There is no issue coming up in the future that is going to catch God off guard. He will never look to Jesus. He will never look to Gabriel. He'll never look to Michael and be like, did you see that coming? What the heck happened? I don't know where that came from. There's nothing that's ever going to surprise him. In theology, we like to use the word omniscient. He knows everything. You have no sin, no struggle, no difficulty that's going to catch him off guard. Our current problems, our future problems, they will not separate us from the love of Christ. But wait, but wait, Chad, what if there's something out there I haven't even thought of yet? Can that separate me from the love of Christ? What if there's something out there I don't even know about yet? Like what if there's aliens? Can that separate us from the love of God? No. Here's how Paul says it. I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing. That phrase height or depth refers to stars at their, at their zenith and stars at their low point. All the space in between it. Nothing. So if I had the chance to go back to little shady 12-year-old Chad and show him Romans chapter 8, you know what I would say to him? 
would say, Chad, your salvation has nothing to do with your moral performance. And it has everything to do with the fact that God is good and faithful. You are not saved, Chad, because you're keeping the rules. You're not adding to your salvation. You're not contributing to your salvation by keeping the rules. You are saved because Christ has perfectly saved you. He has perfectly accomplished salvation on the cross. His work is sufficient and complete. Your job is to rest in that. Your job is to say yes and amen to that. And for the rest of your life, come back to the bedrock of this truth that if Jesus is saving you, if Jesus is the one that's come for you, no one's going to pull you out of his hand. No one. Now, whenever you preach the gospel like this and you preach it in a very God-centered way, there's always a look that comes across people's faces. And it's a good look. It's funny to me up here because I see your face kind of contort a little bit, but it means you're thinking and you're wrestling with something. You're, you're running into a roadblock and it's a great roadblock to run into. Here's what you're probably thinking. Well, where does obedience fit into that picture? You're making it sound like it's just easy believism. Like you don't have to have any kind of maturity in Christ. Like you can just come to him and just, he does it all. That doesn't make sense. Surely I have to do something. Here's what I always thought when I heard gospel presentations like this in your notes. Can I just sin whenever I want then? If God has fully saved me from everything, can I just sin and do whatever I feel like? In case you haven't caught the theme, the answer is going to be no. And I'll show you why real quick. You see, salvation is not just an executive level pardon from sin. Salvation is also the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit. Jesus said it like this to Nicodemus. If you want to see the kingdom of heaven, you must be born again. There must be a new nature that takes up residency in your heart. 1 John 3.9 explains it real clearly. I love this text. No one born of God. We see that language again. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. So the text isn't saying that you'll never sin. It's just saying your life will no longer be all about sin. You're going to be trending upwards in, in obedience and you'll be trending downwards in your disobedience, in your rebellion. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning for God's seed, his spirit, his DNA abides in him. And he cannot keep on sinning because he's been born of God. So people ask me, how do I know if I'm a real Christian? I always tell them, can you sin comfortably? Does sin bother you? If you can sin comfortably, I would be very, very worried. But if your sin causes you to repent, causes contrition, causes confession, your sin makes you uncomfortable, that's a very good sign. Very good sign. Because it means the spirit is warring against your flesh. It means the spirit of life is actively putting to death the law of sin and death. It's a good sign. Paul hits Romans 6 in this way. He kind of explains it from a wisdom perspective. He says, when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. That means when you didn't know Jesus, you just did whatever you want and you didn't feel bad about it. You just did whatever you felt like and you felt like you were free. 
you were actually enslaved to your own sin. But what fruit were you getting at the time from the things of which you are now ashamed? So he's like, hey, you remember that time you went out and partied really hard? And it was fun for a little bit. But then you woke up in Mexico with a tattoo on your butt cheek and you don't remember how you got there? (laughs) What fruit did you reap from that sin? Because that's how sin works. It is temporarily fun and just produces nothing but death and pain on the backside. Nothing but death and pain. There's fallout. So here's what he says. The end of those things is death. Now that you've been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end is eternal life. God's not calling you to obedience because he needs you to add to your salvation. He's accomplished it fully. With all due respect, he just doesn't need your help. He's calling you to obedience because it's in obedience we find how we're really meant to live. We find exactly how we are supposed to live. We find deeper levels of joy, deeper levels of intimacy with God. We find what the Bible calls life that's truly life. God isn't asking you to obey because he needs your help to save you. He's got that handled. He's calling you to obey because he's for your joy. Because he wants you to find the way you were meant to live. You weren't meant to suffer under the shame and guilt of sin. You're meant to be free. So here's how I want to close our time off with two little questions to just get us thinking. First one's really more of a statement. It just says this, you can rest. You can rest in the sufficiency and the security of God's salvation. If you came in today with a heart heavy, just rest, breathe out. Trust in what God Almighty has done for you. And secondly, pick one area of obedience to walk in. Maybe it's how you've been handling your finances. Maybe you've been drinking too much. Maybe it's how you're treating people at home or at work. Maybe it's, I I don't know. You've got some area of obedience that that you can submit more to the Lord. And what I want to challenge you with is, is tell the Lord and tell someone else. Tell someone else, you know, this area of my life, I want to submit more into, not because I'm trying to get saved I know I'm saved in Christ. But I want to lay this down to the Lord and find life that I'm meant to live, find life that's truly life. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for this wonderful text. I pray, God, that you would help our hearts to rest in the perfect, completed work of what you've done. May this be a warm blanket to our souls when the darkness creeps in, when the nights get cold, may this comfort us that you will hold us and hold us fast. You are worthy, Jesus. And I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would compel us to deeper obedience. Show us, God, that your ways are good and that you lead us unto true life. And I pray these things in your wonderful name. Amen.